You are listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. Seeking the Lord's blessing, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. I will be reading verses 5 through 18. And this morning, our message will be focused on verses 8 through 18. Well, before I read these verses, let's ask God's blessing in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word that faith comes by hearing, hearing your word proclaimed. Through the preaching of your word and the teaching of your word, this is the means by which you have given to work faith in us and to build us up in that holy faith. And so we ask you to bless now the reading and preaching of your word to our edification. And we pray that you would be pleased to teach us and encourage us and strengthen us through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 14 and beginning at verse 5, this is God's holy word. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra... There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, 
satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And again, verse 17, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Now, so many in the world live in vanity and in futility. They live meaningless lives without purpose. Everything they do has no ultimate end or goal or hope. And much of their behavior is foolish. In fact, it defies common sense. Man's created a rational being, a thinking being. We have brains, and we should be uh, behaving in a manner that is rational. But in unbelief, fallen man doesn't. He suppresses the truth. He suppresses what God has revealed to him. And he exchanges the truth for a foolish lie. And the result of this is a meaningless, hopeless, vain existence. And all of the religions of the world and all of worldviews of the world are nothing but an expression of this vanity. But the good news is this, that God is reaching out to such people. God is reaching out to lost sinners who are living vain, hopeless, meaningless, foolish lives. He's reaching out to them with good news. And the good news is that they are to turn away from all of that vanity and to embrace the true and living God, to believe in Him, to believe in Christ, to embrace what is rational, what is true, and what brings meaning and purpose and hope. It's a wonderful thing to think about uh, that this uh, great gospel message is being sent out into the world of vanity. Now I'd like for us to look at these amazing verses this morning from Acts chapter 14. And as we do so, let's do it in three parts. That sounds good. First, the miracle at Lystra. Second, the idolatrous response to the miracle from this crowd. And then thirdly, we'll look at the restraining words of the apostles, what they said to them in order to restrain them from this idolatrous response. Well, let's begin by first looking at the miracle done at Lystra. The miracle done at Lystra. Now, one of the things that's so interesting about these events is where they are taking place. Where they are taking place. They are taking place in a city that is almost entirely Gentile. Look at verse 8. Now at Lystra. At Lystra. That's where we are at this time. The vast majority of this city uh, is Gentile. There was no Jewish synagogue. 
This is something unique on, the, uh, on this first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, when they went to city to city, uh, for example, the last two cities, Antioch and Iconium, there was a Jewish synagogue there. And so they would enter the synagogue, and that's where they would begin preaching. Here there is not. The only religious buildings that we read of are pagan idol temples. There was a temple of Zeus at the entrance of the city. Now, though the city was primarily almost, almost all Gentile, there nevertheless were some Jewish people that lived in Lystra. We're not introduced to them here, but we know that they are here. Do you know who they are at this time, when this is taking place? Do you know who's there at this time? Well, we know that there were two Jewish women who lived here, a mother and a daughter. The mother was named Eunice, uh, or Lois, and the daughter was named Eunice. And this daughter, Eunice, was married to a Greek man in this city. And they had a son. And his name was Timothy. This is the family that was living in this city. And we're not introduced to them yet. And yet they're there. When Paul comes to the city, think about that. Uh, Lois and Eunice and Timothy and the Greek father of Timothy, they're part of the population of this city. And no doubt, they would have been part of the first group of converts who formed the core group of the congregation that will be established there. It's very interesting to think about in itself that this young man, Timothy, with his mother and grandmother and Greek father, lived there. Now, Paul and Barnabas came to this city of Lystra. And what were they doing when they came here? They were preaching the gospel. Look at verse 7. And they continued to preach the gospel. That's what they were doing. And by preaching the gospel, they're preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. They're preaching about the salvation of God through his one and only son, uh, the son of God who came in our flesh. They're preaching the gospel. And they're doing so day by day because it says that they continued to preach the gospel. And on one of the occasions when they were preaching the gospel, there was a crippled man who was there listening, listening to the preaching of Paul. Now think about this man for a moment. He had never walked a day in his life. He was born with lame feet, whether they were deformed or something about uh, his body uh, made them uh, unusable. He had never walked a day. Verse 8. Now at Lystra, Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And never walked. Verse 9 tells us that Paul could see that this man was believing what Paul was saying. He could see that this man was believing what Paul was saying. Now, this is not something that Paul guessed at or something that Paul determined by what he was 
observing on the outside as he was speaking to these people. And he didn't start looking at one man and think, he's getting it. I can see it. I can see it on his face. Now, <clears throat> when I preach to all of you, uh, you have different expressions and different ways of receiving that. You know, some of you are like statutes. So, you know, you don't move at all. You just gaze. Some have their eyes closed. Now, I'm not saying they're sleeping. Because I know for a fact, I have a very close friend who, uh, even when we go to Banner of Truth, he sits next to me, listens to the greatest preaching at Banner of Truth, and he, he sits there with his eyes closed. But he's not sleeping. He's thinking with his eyes closed. Sometimes there is an actual physical response, a verbal response. I preached a chapel service one time when I was in seminary in Pittsburgh, and there were many black folks among the congregation, and uh, as I was preaching, there were amens. And I'm going to tell you, that's encouraging. I mean, you just start to really get behind that as people are responding. Some of you, when I make eye contact, uh, you'll start to nod your head. But you see, that doesn't really tell me what's going on on the inside, right? It may be that that is actually that you're thinking, yes, I understand, I understand. Or it may just be that's your kind of response when eyes get locked on you and you just think, you know, the minister is looking at me. We, we can't read the heart. There wasn't something about this man, as Paul was preaching, as he looked at him, that he thought, oh, I see that this guy is really believing. No, this is something that the Holy Spirit enabled Paul to discern. As Paul was looking at this man, it says he was looking at him intently, that is, with great attention. Think of all the people that Paul preached to. He was looking at people all the time, but there was something that the Lord drew uh, to Paul's attention in this man, in this man. The Holy Spirit, it seems, enabled Paul to perceive that this crippled man was believing the message for what it really was, the Word of God, and he was really believing in Jesus Christ. He was believing this method. In other words, he had faith. The Holy Spirit had given this man a new heart, and he was believing Jesus is the Savior. And that means Jesus died for my sin. And what Paul is telling me is true. Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a resurrection. And when I'm raised, I'm going to have feet. And I'll be able to walk in a new body. Paul could see that the Holy Spirit was working this faith in him. And the Holy Spirit then prompted Paul to say to this man, stand up. Stand up. See, this is not the faith of the charismatic Pentecostal movement that says, if you believe hard enough that you can be healed, then you're going to be healed. No, this is a faith that is in Jesus Christ as the Savior, and the Holy Spirit is enabling Paul to realize this man actually does believe that Jesus Christ is going to save him and raise him, and that he is being moved then to work a miracle in order to confirm the proclamation of the gospel. This man believed Jesus was the Son of God 
who died for his sins. And so by believing the gospel, he was putting his trust in Christ. And this is why then he was made, as it were, a man who was uh, a candidate for being healed and used as this testimony of an undeniable miracle, confirming that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior of the world. And so he is healed. And this is an undeniable miracle. This man had never walked before. He never walked before. So it doesn't mean that his feet, only his feet, were completely healed. You can imagine if you'd never walked before, and then your body gets new feet, you still would need to learn how to walk. You know, the whole idea of being balanced and taking steps. So the whole, whatever it would have to be for, for the whole nervous system and the wiring of the brain uh, to enable this man to instantly stand up and to begin walking. This is an undeniable miracle that was performed here. Well, let's move on and look at the second portion, the idolatrous response of the crowd. Look at verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now, this is very interesting because it seems that Paul and Barnabas didn't initially understand what the crowd was saying. It doesn't seem that they initially understood what was happening. Uh, what they saw is that the crowd is beginning to burst out in excitement around them. The crowds are shouting. And it says they're shouting in the Lyconian language. Now we know that the Apostle Paul had the gift of tongues. He could understand and speak other languages. But it seems that one of the languages that he did not understand or was given the gift to understand was Lyconian. Uh, it's emphasized here. They were speaking in Lyconian. And it seems the reason why we can assume that Paul and Barnabas didn't understand the language as they were shouting out is because they're shouting out, this man is Hermes and this man is Zeus. And if Paul and Barnabas heard them saying this and understood they were saying this, you can be sure that they would have corrected them. You can be sure that they would have said, that is not true. In fact, it is not until later when they see the priest of Zeus uh, wandering down the street with oxen, with all these garlands of flowers all over these oxen and all these flowers and the people celebrating and they're, they're beginning to say, what's going on in the town? And there's... And then they learn they're going to offer sacrifices to you. Now, what can we learn from this idolatrous response? What can we learn from this? One lesson is this. When the gospel is preached, when we share the good news of Jesus Christ to others, it can be misunderstood. It can be misunderstood. There was nothing wrong with Paul's preaching. Nothing wrong with Paul's teaching. Nothing unclear, nothing misleading. The problem was the entrenched beliefs in the crowd. The most basic belief of these people 
was wrong. They didn't even have a, 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 they didn't even believe that there was a distinction between the creation and the creator. They weren't thinking in those terms. They were polytheists. For them, all that existed was the universe. That's all there was. All there is. The universe and spirits, finite spirits, and that these things have always existed. These people did not perceive the distinction between the creation and the creator. See, according to their pagan ideas, the universe existed as a chaos for eons and eons. Eternity, in fact. And then, out of the chaos, out of the chaos, from the chaos, were born the gods. And every form of polytheism is like this. The belief that the universe is all there is, and from the chaos of the universe are born the various things, the gods and the lesser gods, and then man. Now today, February 2022, there are still many polytheists. The Eastern religions of Hinduism believes that there are millions of finite gods that have sprung up out of the stuff of reality. And that's all there is. The Mormons believe that what we call God actually came up out of the universe. That it was a finite being, a product of the universe. There is no transcendent creator. Today, secular unbelievers do not believe in an infinite eternal creator. The atheistic science of today maintains that the only thing that exists is the material universe. And the universe had a beginning, but it had no cause, no creator. It's nothing but the forces of nature, the stuff of nature, the laws of nature. These all began to exist of their own. And the present universe that we now see has evolved to become what it is. And so when we preach the gospel and we speak about God and the Son of God and the Savior, it's not that our message is not clear. It's that the framework of their thinking often misunderstands what's being said. And this is something we need to remember when we preach to unbelievers today, when we share the gospel, when we tell people about Jesus Christ, many of them will interpret what we say incorrectly. They won't even be aware of the distinction between the creator and the creation. That's one lesson that we can learn here. Another thing that we can learn from this idolatrous response is that it was sincere. It was sincere. Look at verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. This is a sincere response. When they shouted out, the gods have come down to us, and then the, they want to offer sacrifices to them. Now, to be sure, there are some who know the truth, who know the truth about God, who know the truth of the gospel, and then they apostatize from it. Like demons, 
They know the truth and they willfully choose to deny it and to reject it. But there are many who are ignorant and blind. And they sincerely practice paganism. They sincerely act out of their beliefs uh, with a sincerity. There are secular scientists and philosophers who are sincerely stuck in their worldview. And there are polytheists, like this multitude at Lystra, who were planning on worshiping Paul and Barnabas as if they were really gods. These people were sincerely believing what was false. Another thing that we can learn from this idolatrous response is that it was foolish. It was foolish. It was not rational. Even though it was sincere, it was still a stupid thing to do. Now that's a biblical expression from the Psalms which speaks about idolatry. In verses 14 and 15, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. Now, notice here how Paul and Barnabas are deeply distressed by what this crowd is doing and what they're going to do. They're horrified by it. Verse 14 says that they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowds to stop them. The tearing of their clothes shows their emotional distress. They're not ripping apart a t-shirt that they got at Walmart. Uh, clothing in the ancient world was very expensive and people didn't have many changes of clothing. So to tear your garments was a sign of real emotional distress. Paul and Barnabas are truly upset. And when they hear what's going to happen, they're so upset, especially because they see that they are the reason the object of the idolatry that is about to take place. Now, as Christians, you and I should be upset about idolatry. We should be upset by idolatry. Today, you hear, you know, a lot about comparative religions, right? We hear a lot about comparative religions. Different people groups, different cultures, different nations, they all have their own religion and uh, they're sincerely held to, and everyone should just embrace everyone, get along with everyone, and, and say how wonderful it is that we all have our own religion. But there should be something within the heart of a Christian that says, no, there's something horrible about unbelief. That's not the attitude of the apostles to be uh, warm about, oh, look at this people who are so zealous in their idolatry. They're going to have this celebration. Look at how happy they are. Uh, no. They're very upset. They're very upset. And the reason why is because they see it for what it really is. A people made in God's image who are made to glorify and worship the true God, the true creator. And they're going to give that praise and that thanks 
to a finite creature, a finite thing. So the apostles are not indifferent to this. They go out into the crowd in order to stop them. To stop them. They go out to try to persuade them with words of reason. To give up this paganism. We have come here not to encourage your false religion and idolatry. We've come to turn you away from this. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Why are you doing this? This is vanity. This is foolishness. Look, we are men. We are men. Now, unbelief leads people to do what is absurd. And we see it in our age, don't we? I have learned this week that the two best swimmers in college swimming, in women's swimming, the two best swimmers in women's swimming are men. That's absurdity. And that has come about by the unbelief of our age. Believing that the universe is all there is and that there is no God who has created man, male and female. That's what we have today. And that's what idolatry leads to in Psalm 115 and verses 4 through 8. Listen to what the psalm says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. And so here the apostles are saying, what are you doing? We are men like you. Notice there's no racism in biblical Christianity. Right? The apostle says here, We also are men of like nature with you. There's no racism in biblical Christianity. All human beings are of like nature. All of us are equally human beings. We all come from the same parents. We all have come from Noah. All of us are made in God's image. There is no superior human race or family. We're all the same. And so they said to the people, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things. Turn from these vain things to a living God. Now think about what's being said here. They tell the people that only God is eternal. The world and the universe is finite. And it is the creation of God. And as I mentioned earlier in our service, we see here that the apostle uh, speaks from the fourth commandment, right? He uses those words from Exodus 20, 11, four in six days. And then he says, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And also notice that there is a clear and radical difference between Christianity and all other religions. Okay, not only is this fundamental difference between the creator and the creation, 
But there is also a fundamental difference between all world religions and Christianity, no matter how similar they may sound on the surface. Think about this for a moment. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've heard this said before. Christianity is really not all that different from many other religions. After all, there are many religions that teach of an incarnation. Have you ever heard of that? that many religions have the idea of a God who becomes incarnate as a human being and enters the world. And Christianity is just like that. Well, notice verse 11. Paul and Barnabas are there as apostles of the Christian faith. In verse 11, when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Well, what is the true gospel? What is the gospel? That the Son of God came down to us in the likeness of men. But that does not mean that these are the same. It does not mean that one comes from the other. Oh, they may sound somewhat similar on the surface, but they are in no way similar at all. And Paul and Barnabas clearly understands this. What the pagans see as an incarnation of finite deities is nothing like the incarnation of the infinite, eternal, unchangeable Son of God who did not become a man but took into union with his divine nature, a human nature, and came into the world. The pagan view, it was foolish, it was vain, and so they are to turn from it. They are to turn from it. And you and I need to remember this for today as well, because a lot of this thinking is still in our world and still in our nation. You know, we, uh, we think of our friends of the First Nations and their people, and their, their, their pagan religion is celebrated as something to celebrate. It's not. We should want to see them turn from this vanity and embrace the true living God. Now then, let's move on to the third section here, and that is the restraining words of the apostles. And as we look at these restraining words of the apostles, what we are going to see here is that God has provided a witness in creation and providence. Look at verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now remember, this city is almost entirely pagan. There were a few Jewish families here, and those few Jewish families had their own copy of the Bible. We know this, that um, uh, Lois and Eunice had the scriptures, and they taught young Timothy uh, the teaching of scripture. But 
by and large, this city, like the many cities, Gentile cities of the world, did not have the special revelation of God's word. They didn't have the benefit of God's special revelation. Before the coming of Christ, before the Great Commission, the scriptures, the prophetic voice of God, the revelation of God's word was given to Israel, to the Jews. And the nations, before the coming of Christ, God allowed to go their own way. To go their own way. However, their own way, their idolatry, had no excuse. In other words, not having the Bible did not give them an excuse to descend into idolatry. And the reason why, as Paul says, is that the eternal power and divine nature of God is revealed in creation and providence. The heavens display the glory of God, Psalm 19.1. The universe bears testimony of God's existence and goodness. As Paul writes in Romans 1.19, what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. And so there was no excuse for this idolatry. There was no excuse for this pagan thinking. There's no excuse for atheism. Creation proves that God exists. Verse 17a, yet he did not leave himself without witness. Without witness. God has given a witness. Now, what is very interesting about this is that in verse 17, it shows us that not only creation itself, you know, the things that exist in creation, but providence, providence, how the days are unfolding, that is a witness. So it's not just that there are things that we look at in creation and say, oh, there must be a creator, but the way in which things are interacting, the way that things happen to us, this too is a witness. It's very striking. Look at what the apostles are saying. God has been doing good to you. God has been doing good to you. He has sent you rain. He has given you fruitful seasons. He satisfied your hearts with food and with gladness. This is what God has been doing for all people everywhere throughout all history. God has been doing this for all unbelievers even. And it is said to be a witness, a testimony that God exists and that he is good, that he is good. Providence is a witness that should turn people away from unbelief and atheism and should turn them to him. Now, one of the things that is so interesting about this is when you think about how this whole thing began. How did this all begin? It began in verse 8. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. A man 
born with lame feet. A man who had never walked a single day in his life. A crippled man from birth. I'm sure you know of people who struggle with the existence of God or who refuse to believe that God exists because of suffering in their life. How could God really be a good God? How could he even exist with all this suffering? Look at it all around us. How could God exist and be good if there are people who are born crippled like this man? How can God exist if the world is full of suffering and death? The universe doesn't tell me that God exists and that he is good. See, this is the problem of evil that people often raise, isn't it? Now, it's interesting, again, when you think of the apostles here, there isn't one ounce of credibility at all in this kind of thinking. Not one ounce of credibility at all to the idea that suffering in the world is a counter-testimony to God's existence and goodness. The apostles don't think in that way at all. Not one hint in the apostles that there is this contradictory message that's coming from creation and providence. It's not as if rain and food and music and art and marriage and babies and puppies and kittens, all these good things are reasons to believe that God exists and that he's good. But then there's also earthquakes and plagues and disease and animal food chain and death. And that seems to be a powerful testimony that God doesn't exist and that he's not good. There's no sense of this in the apostles, is there? The apostles don't view creation and providence as two contradictory witnesses. As one witness that says good times and happiness is a witness for God's existence. And then another witness that steps up and suffering and sorrow. And it's a witness against God's existence. Not at all. For the apostles, creation and providence only says, only says God exists and he is good. God exists and he is good and therefore you should turn away from your atheism, from your idolatry to him, the living God. Now this is very important. This is very important. How, how is it that the apostles are thinking this way? How is it that the scripture harmonizes the blessings of providence with the sufferings of providence into one unified message that God is good? And that he's all-powerful. It's very simple. The blessings of providence bear witness to the goodness of God. And the sufferings of providence bear witness to our need for salvation from him. It's that simple. In providence, God is declaring his goodness and our need. God has imposed the curse on creation. The world wasn't originally made with suffering. He imposed suffering as part of a call to repentance. 
He imposed suffering as a way of declaring that he is angry at sin, that the wages of sin is death. And he has imposed suffering, this is very important, he has imposed the curse after he preached the gospel. He first promised that he was sending Jesus Christ in the world, and then he cursed creation. And so, in the minds of the apostle, there is absolutely no sense of two different messages in providence. There's only one. God is good. Don't you realize that? Don't you realize that the, the way in which he gives you good things that you enjoy shows you that the creator must be good. He must be good. How can you enjoy the wonderful things of this life and then think the creator must be bad? It's not possible. And then, when you're under suffering... That just shows you your need. If God is good, why is there suffering? It's because there's sin. There's sin. The wages of sin is death, and God is displaying his wrath against unrighteousness. But that itself is a call to repentance. Oh yes, you and I live in the world now under the curse, under suffering, under sorrow, under many different manifestations of that to different degrees. But all of us have been given the same good news that there is a salvation from all of this in Jesus Christ. And so these two displays are simply two different witnesses to the same truth, that God is, that he is good, and that we should turn away from the vanity of unbelief to the living and true God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to come to see the truth of the glorious salvation that you freely offer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that everyone here would indeed be putting their hope and their trust in him that they would be turning away from the vanity and futility of unbelief to embrace the true and living God, what is rational, what is full of hope, what brings purpose, and what will last forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to sermons from New Creation Reformed Presbyterian Church. God bless you.